Um, good morning, family, and Merry Christmas. Uh, it's so good to see you guys. Uh, it's always a pleasure to be able to share God's Word with His people through the power of His Spirit. That's just such a, a, a powerful blessing. Um, please open your Bibles to John's Gospel, chapter 1. John's Gospel, chapter 1. Today is a rare occurrence. It's a Christmas day that falls on a Sunday. And you may be aware this only happens about a dozen times uh, in an average lifespan. And, and it's good to see that many of you are here this morning uh, to worship the Lord as we're celebrating this season. But I would like to share with you, uh, today's message is going to be on the shorter side. And while that might disappoint one or two of you... Um, <laughs> Uh, when I mentioned it to Shannon in front of my two youngest kids, uh, they informed me that would be a Christmas present to them. <laughs> so that's how things go at the Barrier House. But today, uh, we're going to examine one particular verse, one particular verse, and we're going to use that verse to at least partially answer the question, what does Christmas teach us about God? What does Christmas teach us about God? And by the word Christmas, I don't mean the holiday specifically, but, but the actual event that we celebrate, which is the incarnation of the second person of the Godhead, when the Word became flesh. And so uh, please join me in prayer, and then we're going to dig into one of the just most incredible, wonderful sentences in the whole Bible. Uh, Father God, I just lift up this message to you today. I lift up this uh, group to you today. For those who listen later, or for those who are watching online, we just pray, God, that uh, you help each one of us to resonate with the Word, that, uh, that it will speak to our hearts and that we will take it with us throughout the week, uh, Father, that uh, as we slow down a little bit, this time of year is so busy, and uh, we've slowed down some of our, our church programs and things in order to be able to accommodate, but God, um, help us to take time to specifically thank you for Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray, amen. John 1.14 John 1.14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You know, if you were here last night, or, or if you've ever read John's Gospel before, then you probably recognize the context of this verse. Uh, you probably also understood the importance of it because you've Certainly heard it quoted from this pulpit multiple occasions, but I, I don't think we've ever really dissected it together. And so this morning, uh, I hope you'll, you'll spend a few minutes just mentally tracking with me, uh, just, just thinking through the implications of this amazing verse. It, it's just, it's phenomenal. John begins by referencing the Word. Who or what is the Word? Jesus. That's, a, that's a, a definite article in the Greek. It's, so it's not saying a word. He's saying the word. It's talking about Jesus Christ himself, God the Son. And John started out his gospel by saying, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And this is important for us to recognize. okay? Because for centuries, various cults have tried to explain away Jesus as something less than God. But he is, in fact, God. He is God the Son, voluntarily submissive to the Father, but no less God than the Father or the Spirit. And it's interesting, however, that the, the Holy Spirit led the Apostle John to call Jesus the Word. There's a lot of speculation uh, over the centuries as to why John used the Word to describe Christ, but 
I think the reason was the inspiration of God as the author. You know, so why did God lead John to write the word? You know, the Greek word logos is translated the word is not just a collection of letters that spells something. Logos also means rational thought. It's from where we get our word logic. And it's a profound reminder of the explicit order that's inherent in creation. You know, at, at least a few times a year, um, typically from the pulpit, but often in class too, I, I like to uh, poke holes in the Darwinian evolution theory. Um, you guys are probably familiar with that. Uh, to think that life came from non-life and evolved on its own, to my mind, that requires far more faith than believing in a creative designer. And, and the belief in the Big Bang, really, it, it, that, that suspends rational thought. How many times have you seen an explosion produce order? Anyone? I'll bet you've never seen two, uh, two cars collide into each other and they go from Pintos to Ferraris, right? You haven't seen that, have you? I certainly haven't. For those of you under 25, a Pinto was not... <laughs> The idea that, that all the incredible beauty and complexity and, and delicate systems and balances in this universe came by accident is just ridiculous. And the Apostle Paul tells us that God is a God of order. And I think even if he hadn't specifically said that, we would know it from creation. When you go outside and look at nature, when you see the, the beauty in, 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 in the crystalline structure of a snowflake, or when you look at a leaf, Heavens proclaim the glory of God, the firmament, his handiwork. The fact that John uses uh, the word as an expression of the second person of God reminds us that God is purposeful. God is purposeful. Scripture tells us Jesus is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Okay? None of what God did in, in the salvation story was unintended, nor was it unexpected. Everything that God did, he did for a purpose. He had a purpose in mind for whatever he did, and he always has a purpose in mind for whatever he does, or whatever he, he allows. And this is evident from the beginning. Now next, John tells us that this word, which was with God and was God, became flesh. Now this is a truly amazing miracle. I, I, wonder, I wonder if creating the universe from nothing would be easier for an infinitely powerful God than being a part of that creation. You know, it's been compared to the, the difference between writing a story and then the author actually entering into the story. God in the person of Jesus Christ went from his throne in heaven to the womb of a virgin. He was a zygote with divinely human cells that began to replicate, creating his, his tiny heart and brain and, and organs and limbs and bones, flesh. The word incarnate means in flesh. As Philippians 2 tells us, Jesus did not consider equality with God a thing to be clung to, but humbled himself, taking on the very nature of a servant the second person of the eternal Lord of the universe clothed himself in flesh and became a baby to endure for the first time everything human beings endure. 
including a finite body, discomfort, hunger, pain, and, and to an extent, risk. You know, to me, this says that God is brave. God is brave. There's a neat movie that came out in the 1990s called Angus. Some of you might remember it. It's about a kid who has to grow in his maturity in the face of, of some, some bullying and some self-esteem issues. And at one point, uh, his grandpa, he's having a conversation with his grandpa, and he makes a great observation that gets Angus's attention. Grandpa says that Superman isn't brave. And then he goes on to explain that someone who is invulnerable can't really be brave because nothing can hurt them. To truly be brave requires vulnerability. God has, he's always allowed himself emotional vulnerability, you know, by by creating a race of beings in his own image that he knew would rebel. But this is a far greater step to become one of us, to undergo the entire human experience, even to uh, being tortured to death. God chose to be vulnerable to the point of becoming sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He chose to be vulnerable knowing what it would cost. And I find that to be courageous beyond measure. So the Word became flesh and dwelt. I want you to pause there. What does it mean to dwell? To live and stay in a specific place, right? Where was God said to dwell in the Old Testament? In the Holy of Holies, which was in the temple. And before that, the tabernacle, right? That was uh, the tabernacle, if you forget, um, that was an enormous tent that the Israelites would, would literally pack up and carry with them every time the presence of God moved from place to place. They would take that giant tent with them in the wilderness and, uh, and wherever they went in their wanderings. This is interesting because the word translated dwelt literally means tented or encamped. In the Old Testament, God was said to live in his tabernacle and then his temple. And he sat upon the mercy seat, which was on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, which was behind the temple curtain in a place called the Holy of Holies. And so the people of Israel, this is, this is after Solomon built the first temple because there was still a tabernacle during David's time. The people of Israel, uh, from, from the point of the temple being built, pretty much viewed Jerusalem as God's home, as a place where God dwelt. In fact, even when they were in captivity in Babylon, we see this in, in the book of Daniel, the faithful would still think of this decimated city of Jerusalem as the holy city, and so they would, they would think of it as the place where God lived, and they would pray toward it. But under the new covenant, things changed. You know, as we recently read from the book of Hebrews a couple of weeks ago, you know, it, it talked about how the temple curtain was torn upon the death of Christ, showing how his body is now the door through which people can enter God's presence personally without the the need for an earthly priest. This would not have been possible had he not become flesh. And flesh needs a place to dwell. 
So the fact that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us means that He wasn't in heaven anymore. He was, but rather, somewhere that the people are. You know, and, and He was no longer separated by a curtain either. In fact, even before coupling with the next two words, this tells us that God is near. God is near. There used to be this humanly impassable boundary between God and man ever since Adam and Eve left the garden. And even when the Lord was in His holy temple, only one man was ever enter, uh, able to enter into His presence in the Holy of Holies. And it was only once a year. And that was only the high priest. But suddenly the Word became flesh, meaning for the first time, He could be among us. Man, reading uh, Zechariah this morning really, really hit me. Um, by the way, we're going to redo next year the Bible in a year on the YouVersion app. We're going to start over, and we're going to do it in the same, uh, the same one, which is the Bible Project app. Many of you signed up last year. Many of you gave up somewhere in the middle of the year. Many of you didn't sign up last year. I want to encourage you, get on there. Sign up. We're going to do the Bible Project. If you're like, oh, I already watched all those videos last year, watch them again. They're really good. They're just little short videos that explain what each book of the Bible is about. Or just, if you say, you know, I've already seen them. Skip that. Just read the Scripture. But let's read that together, guys. Let's be in the Word together. So we're going to start that on January 1st. We're going to be in the Bible Project. We're going to do the Bible in a year. Sorry, that was... Lost my train of thought there, but... The phrase among us is interesting in the Greek because of all the, the potential ways that it could be translated into English. And perhaps the, the coolest part about this is that the most literal uh, translation, the most literal reading might be that the Word became flesh and made His dwelling in us. The Greek word is en, E-N, if you're writing it in English. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling in us, which is precisely what He does when the Holy Spirit takes up residence in a believer's heart through faith. Of course, John wrote this decades after the Holy Spirit had been poured out on God's people at Pentecost. And, and so perhaps he intended the double meaning. I don't know. But either way, the fact that, that God the Son left heaven and entered His own creation as a man shows us that God is relational doesn't mean he's needy in the sense that we are. You know, almost every couple knows that one of you is more relational than the other. One of you is more touchy-feely. Guess which one it is in our house. Guess which one. <laughs> one of you is like, I can kind of, you know, I can take or leave you, whatever. You know, it's not necessarily. But, um, but one of you is always more needy, and that's, uh, that's how we sometimes think of relational. That's not at all how God is. God is not needy. God doesn't need to be in relationship with mankind to be satisfied within Himself because He has the perfect fellowship of Father, Son, and Spirit throughout all eternity. So I want to just say that. It's not that He was lonely, okay? There's this really lame thing that people sometimes say, well, why did God create... You know, man and woman, oh, because he was lonely. No. God doesn't get lonely in that sense, okay? It's not that he was lonely. It's simply he desires a deep relationship with these beings that he created in his image to have fellowship with him. 
In His great love, He sees that our greatest spiritual need is to be in relationship with Him deeply, closely. He provided that by sending His Son to earth for us. To ground on that, let's pull in the next phrase. It says, and we have seen. Okay, who's writing this? John, the Apostle John. Right, what does it mean when he says, we have seen? Right, eyewitness account. He's, I, he says, I have personally experienced this. And he's not referring to one event either. That, that Greek word that's translated seen, it doesn't mean like a, like a quick glance. It's a long studied look. It's an observation. Okay? Literally, it means we beheld. And this, this is John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, who lived with Jesus day in and out for probably more than two years. And as we saw in his first epistle, Jesus is someone that John saw with his eyes, heard with his ears, touched with his hands. Friends, the God of the Bible is evident. Meaning that he has revealed himself explicitly through not not just the, the staggering grandeur of his creation, but in the person of Jesus Christ. And as John says, we have beheld his glory. You know, one of the most powerful themes in Scripture, I, I believe, is the glory of God. God is very, very bent on exposing His own glory to all of creation. He wants all of creation to see how glorious He is. Everything that He does both reveals and furthers His glory. But I think the greatest display of the glory of God is in this man, Jesus As John says, we have seen, we have beheld His glory. According to Paul in the book of Colossians, this Jesus, this Word become flesh, is the exact imprint of God's nature. And that's not hyperbole, by the way. You know, Jesus Himself made similar statements. He said, I and the Father are one. He told Philip, if you have seen Me, you have seen the Father, as John 14, 9. So, so when we consider what this reveals about God, how can that not move us? Jesus' kindness for strangers, His love for His followers, His, his boldness in the face of evil, His willingness to die so that His enemies could have life. We have seen His glory indeed, for God is glorious. Nothing about God is neutral. There are are no stains, no taints on God's character. He is glorious in all things, and especially in the person of Christ, who is, as John reminds us, the only Son from the Father. Now, this is an interesting phrase right here. First of all, the fact that John refers to Him as the only Son from the Father rather than of the Father, okay? That's a reminder He's not a created being. He is the being through whom all things were created. His life didn't start at conception like a normal human being, okay? Jesus' life began in eternity past. We can't even really use the word began, And it continues into eternity future. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and what? Forever. He came from the Father because He was sent. He was sent. And what I really like about this, what really stood out to me 
as I was studying this passage, is where else in the Bible that we find the word that's translated only in this passage? It's used in very few places. In every case, it means one and only or only begotten. There's a whole other thread that I decided not to go off on, but I find it very interesting. Whenever you see this word, uh, monogonase is the Greek word, in every case, it's referring either to someone who is an only child that is dying, potentially going to die, dead, or consecrated for death, such as in the case of Isaac in Hebrews. I find that very interesting in every single case. There's something special about this word. Anyway, not going to go too far off on that. I just wanted to share that with you guys. I think it's so powerful. So where else have we heard the phrase, God's one and only Son? Yes! John 3.16. You know, for God loved the world in this way, that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes on Him will not perish, but have eternal life. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God gave His one and only Son? Okay, the first Christmas gift was Christ Himself. He was a gift from God to mankind in order that He might have many sons. So let's rewind that. God the Father, in order to rescue a bunch of reprobate people, creations that were in rebellion against their Creator, sent His Son, who is also God, to earth in order to perfectly fulfill His will by living a completely sinless life. Now, don't gloss over that, please. A completely sinless life. Think about what that means. Not only did Jesus never commit sin, He never sinned by omission. In other words, he didn't just never do anything wrong. He always did everything right. So by succeeding at living a sinless life, Jesus fulfilled the requirements to be a perfect sacrifice on behalf of sinners. When he was dying on the cross, Scripture says that God placed upon him the punishment that we deserve in order that we might be brought back into fellowship with God. By his life, death, and resurrection, we can die to sin. And if you have faith in Christ, Scripture says you have died to sin. Been raised to new life in Him. This this is the gospel message. It explains who Jesus is and what God did through Him in order to bring many sons to glory. And I think it teaches us that God is magnanimous. God is magnanimous. If you're wondering why I use that word, I'm going to apologize and just say sorry. But listen, I, I, I even used a thesaurus trying to find a similar word that, you know, some other single word that captured all these qualities of God, his love, his self-sacrifice, the utter hugeness of the goodness of God. And that was the best one I could come up with, was magnanimous. And frankly, language is not adequate to express the character of a God who would put up with sinners let alone lay down his life for us. No descriptor is great enough, so we're going with magnanimous, okay? The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. The glory as of the only son of the father, full of, I want you to pause there again. (laughs) There's something to be said about the word full. How many of you have recently been to CeCe's Pizza? I didn't see a single hand, but I, was, I have it written in my notes. I was going to say, shame on you. 
I've noticed that when we, we go to a place like CeCe's, we tend to use phrases like, I'm full. When what we really mean is, I've sufficiently stuffed my face to feel more than satisfied, but now I'm going to go get some ice cream. So <laughs> last night, I'm not going to say who, one of my family members was sitting at the table eating and said, oh, I'm so full. <laughs> and started eating their macaroni and cheese. I just started laughing. Uh, even, you know, even when we say we're full, we can usually find some more room. But the Greek word that's translated full here is beyond that. It means replete or even covered with, okay? Totally, completely, 100% full. Not partially, not just a little bit, full. Now, why is this important? The last little bit of the sentence is going to tell us what the word become flesh is full of. And we need to understand that his fullness means no lack whatsoever. Scripture, that God, scripture says that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. It doesn't say he's mostly light with some shadows here and there, right? No, no darkness at all. And so whatever God is full of, there is no room for the opposite of those things. Does that make sense? As such, God is integrous. That means he has complete integrity. There is no room in God for contradiction in his character. He can be and is both just and merciful, but he, he is not unjust and he is not unmerciful. And wouldn't it be great if every single one of God's children had his integrity of character? Wouldn't that be amazing? Wouldn't that be a phenomenal witness? Don't you think we ought to? It would certainly set a better example for the world as far as how we represent our Lord. But we're not. We're not integrous in the same sense that God is. We're never fully consistent in our thoughts, in our speech, nor our behavior. But God is. Both Father and the Son are always doing that which is right and best. And so is the Spirit. Jesus even said He could do nothing apart from the will of his Father, if only we were that committed. Now let's take a look at these two things that the word become flesh is full of. First, he is full of grace. He's full of grace. The word is charis in Greek. It's one of my favorite words in the English language. You know, in fact, we gave Evie the middle name, Grace. Because it's such a powerful word, it literally means gift or favor. Specifically, unmerited favor that's freely given to someone who did nothing to deserve it. And if any one word could sum up the ministry of Jesus Christ on earth, it could be grace. It's a perfect word to describe the gift of God in sending His Son that first Christmas. But grace was Jesus' whole life. Everything he did was a gift. It was given to those who, who've done nothing to deserve it, who can do nothing to deserve it. Every word that came from his lips indeed was gracious. Every deed he performed was full of grace. He healed diseases. He cast out demons. He even forgave sins with total abandon. He was overflowing with unmerited favor toward those who would believe, and even for those who wanted to believe but struggled with it. 
I think this reminds us that ultimately God is truly kind. God is kind. Remember that in this season. God is kind. This is the God who gives us everything to enjoy in its own season. This is the creator of the universe who could have made sunsets look like mud, but instead he chose to to paint a completely new canvas across the western sky every single night that's different for every human being on earth wherever they are. You ever think about that? He could have made food bland or procreation boring, but instead he made them good and pleasurable. He introduced mankind to joy. He he invented the giraffe. You know, there's these, uh, the, the animal kingdom is stunning in its diversity, its bizarreness. God is consistently giving. In fact, the the Word tells us every good and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights, who does not change like shifting shadow. And more to the point, what more good or perfect gift is there than our Savior? And so finally, John tells us the incarnate Word, who is full of grace, is also full of truth. Of course he is, right? I mean, since he himself is the truth. But it's a reminder that that there is no falsehood in Christ. Remember that that by definition, truth is that which is fully accurate. What actually is, it's objective. It's real. Truth is not subjective. You know, there's no such thing as like my truth versus your truth. There's only the truth and then how we relate to it. Christ is the truth, and he is full of truth, and we either put our faith in him and we accept that everything that he said about himself and everything that he did was true, because it's a package deal, or else we refuse to accept that, and then we instead we suffer the consequences. You know, the difference between accepting or rejecting Jesus Christ as truth is the difference between eternal life and eternal damnation. It's that simple. It really is that black and white. Do you believe what Scripture teaches us, that God is trustworthy? Do you trust His glorious gift of salvation that He freely gives through His precious Son? Do you believe that's the real thing? Do you believe that that for God so loved the world, He gave His only Son, that whosoever believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life? Listen, if you're on the fence, I hope that what Jesus said next will push you off, okay? John 3, 17 says, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world. Thanks, Tom. Tom Kern sent me that passage this morning. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Listen, because this, this really is what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. It really is. It's not about finding the perfect gift. It's not about feasting. It's, it's, it's not even about spending time with, with those you love, although those are all great byproducts. But, but the real meaning of Christmas, the true meaning, is that God sent His Son to us, not to condemn us, but to save us by laying down His life. That's the true meaning of Christmas. And friends, that is good news. It's very good news. 
And Jesus continues to say that whoever believes in him is not condemned. Praise God. But then there's some bad news. He says, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. There's that Greek word again, one and only, menogenes, the one and only Son of God. So if you want to know, friend, if you want to know whether you are forgiven or condemned, it has to come back around to the question, do you trust God by placing your faith in His Son, Jesus Christ? I mean, our our passage today, it's one verse, but it reveals so much about the character of God. What are you going to do with that? Will you trust in in this amazing man that God sent to to save us, this amazing God-man? Do you put your faith in him? Here's another very important point. If you don't believe, then you are currently under the condemnation of God. But that status can change if you'll believe. Can I get an amen? Amen. We all started out, all of us, sinners. And today, if you're in Christ, you're a saint who sins. But you're forgiven because of what Jesus did, because you have put your faith in Christ. And if you don't believe, ask God for the faith to believe in His Son who died for you. Faith in Jesus, listen, this is so true. It doesn't just change our eternal destination, friends. It changes us. It makes us new. It puts the gift in us. Believe, brother, believe, sister, believe, friend, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and that eyewitnesses saw His glory, the glory as of the one and only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. There is no better time than today. No better time than today. Accept this. Put your faith in Him. And if you think I, I just mean Christmas time, let me clear this up by saying there is no better time than right now. Okay? So if you are, if you're recognizing the need to believe Christ and be forgiven your sins, I challenge you to do that now. I mean, after realizing what God the Father did in sending God the Son to us, doesn't that deserve our praise? Now, last, last thought for you for you Christians, okay? For you people who are already faith-filled, forgiven, saved. I want you to think about this. Little children show their faith in an obese fictional creature by putting out cookies and milk for them. And and they they try to be good. They even stay up to, to sneak a peek at their hero because they believe that he'll reward them And so if they can do this for a fictional elf, can't we who are mature show our faith to the true factual God of the universe by responding with trust and obedience to the one who gave us the greatest gift of all in the person of his son? Can we do that? Takes a little more than cookies and milk to be obedient, yes. But can we do that? Do you believe he's coming? Are you looking for him? Praise God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this day. I thank you for your wonderful gift of your son, Jesus Christ. He is our our King and our Lord. He is our Savior and our great sacrifice. He is our High Priest. Lord, he he is the reason that we're all here, and we ask in his precious name that we spend the rest 
of this Christmas day and the rest of this season ruminating on that, thinking about the beautiful sacrifice that you made in sending your son. We thank you that you gave him this wonderful mandate and that he accepted so freely, so willingly to leave the throne to enter a stable. And may we trust him with our whole heart. And it's in his name we pray.